Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 34, for November 27, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Do Turkey's topsy-turvy political and social upheavals during and following that country's 1980 military coup have anything to tell us about Turkey under President Erdogan today? Journalist Aisha Temelkuran believes so, and in her new novel, The Time of Mute Swans, she tells the story of post-coup Ankara, in which divisions and bloodshed blur the lines between right and wrong, truth and falsehood, beauty and ugliness. Neither journalism nor literature is capable of changing the world. Words are too fragile for that. However, it is capable of uh, reminding people of beauty and preserving beauty to remind us that we are, in fact, capable beings. We are going through time, some evil times, and the victory of evil does not come overnight. It lays a long siege around the human mind, and then the mind forgets that it can create, think, imagine, and most importantly, remember. Temel Karan spoke at a Washington Institute policy forum on November 16, 2017. Joining her to discuss authoritarianism, literature, and memory in Turkey and beyond were the distinguished American diplomat and Turkish literature scholar Robert Finn and the Institute's own Turkish scholar Soner Shabtai. We'll listen to their compelling conversation after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from H.A. Temelkaran. She is a Turkish journalist and author whose recent books include the novel The Time of Mute Swans, set in 1980s Ankara, and the nonfiction Turkey, The Insane and the Melancholy. I mean, here in the U.S., uh, I traveled from... Uh, from New York to Bucknell, uh, I spoke in City University in New York, in Cornell, Bucknell, and I'm going to speak in MIT, Harvard, Columbia, and then I'll be back home in Zagreb. Uh, I'm on a book tour, uh, therefore today I'm going to be talking about my novel, The Time of Mutes Ones, but also I'm going to talk about uh, United States as well. Uh, I came here, uh, to United States, not only to do, do the book lounge, but also to tell you to hurry up, get over the shock, and join us in our insanity, uh, that we had a lot of experience in Turkey. And I want to tell you how the things will turn out even worse. So we have to, you know, get your, get ourselves together, uh, and that we need your uh, intellectual stamina, uh, because insanity in Turkey has tired us so much that we cannot um, do it without you, without the intellectuals of United States and uh, Europe. Um, this book, The Time of Mutes Once, is my recent novel, and it takes place in Ankara. 
Uh, most probably you always read and hear about Istanbul, but nobody really speaks about Ankara. And he, that city is known to be the most boring city in Turkey. And you have to hate it. This is part of being Turkish. You have to get bored there. Although I do think that Ankara has a poetry as well, as well as Istanbul. It is not... Uh, that magnificent, obviously. It doesn't have Ottoman uh, roots. Uh, it is just a small uh, city in the middle of uh, Anatolia. Uh, so it's not a gorgeous place, but it does have a poetry. And I think the poetry of Turkish Republic lies there. Um, the novel takes place during the last three months uh, in 1980 uh, that led up to the 1980 military coup, um, an incident that has not been told enough. And the novel um, is somewhere in between real and unreal. This is what I do in life in general. I write things between real and unreal, between nonfiction and fiction. And it is inspired by real events during the summer of 1980, before the military coup. Um, and I want to tell about these events because it's, the, the book is pretty much about them. And I do think that the real uh, incidents that happened then were, were far more interesting than the novel. Um, in 1984, uh, the real uh, you know, story takes place in 1984 after the military coup. Uh, the leading general of the military coup, uh, Kenan Evren, um, wanted to build a park in Ankara. And for those of you who don't know Ankara, there's already a park there, and it's called Swan Park, and there are swans in it. Uh, but the leading general of the coup wanted to build another park, um, So, he, and he wanted some swans in his park. So he moved the swans from Swan Park to his park, which is called Seymanlar. But these swans hated the, you know, forced displacement. So they wanted to fly back to the original park, Swan Park. Unfortunately, they uh, hit the tall buildings in the city and died one by one. Um, and then the leading general wanted to take some serious action about this. So he ordered the veterinary faculty to come up with a serious plan. So the obedient veterinarians decided to perform an operation on the swans. They moved a certain bone from the wings of the swans so they cannot fly anymore. I wrote this novel in 2014, and it was published in Turkish in 2015. Throughout the year, in 2014, I lived in Ankara to write the novel and to make the research. And whenever I met someone, I asked them the same question. Do you think, do you know if swans can fly? And without an exception, they all said, no, swans cannot fly. And I thought, this <laughs> is what a military coup does to people. It makes you forget that the swans can actually fly, and they cannot fly because they had an operation. You can find the original diagrams of these of this surgical operation in the book as well. I found it in the archives. There is another real story behind this book. 1980 was the year of the beginning of the end for Turkish politics, if you ask me. But also, it was the year. Uh, that for the first time in Turkish history, 
the migrating swans from Siberia stopped in Turkey. Before that, they never did that. But the 1980 year, the year 1980, the summer of 1980, that was the first time. So it felt to me as if the swans were trying to remind people that the swans can actually fly. And after 1980, each year, each summer, they kept coming until 2013, the year of Gezi uprising. After that, they never came, as if their mission of reminding people of themselves, of their capability of flying, was already accomplished. Isn't that magical? I, mean, I, I really quite find it magical. Um, while going through the archives to write this book, uh, I spent more than six months in parliamentary uh, parliament's archives. I saw the seeds uh, of insanity sown in Turkey that is now currently flourishing. And I found out that what Erdogan has been saying for the last two decades had already been said by Kenan Eren, the leading, military, the leading general of the military coup. And I already understood, uh, I also understood that the dominating narrative about my country for the 1970s was not completely correct. It was, it, it, actually, there was a missing part there. And this book is about that missing part, and it is also about the untold story of Turkey. In Turkey, we have been uh, spun with this dominant narrative about 1970s, about the time before the military coup of 1980. They told us that there was a civil war, everybody was killing everybody else, the food shortages were so unbearable, Therefore, uh, the military coup came as a relief to the entire society. However, the entirety of this story was completely different. One, middle class was strong in 1970s. Second, uh, the concept of uh, kindness and generosity was not the monopoly of religious discourse. And third, solidarity and sharing were still prevailing over winner and loser divide. I thought, and then, you know, I came to think about remembering. How do we remember things? How do we forget things? And I now believe that remembering is a form of forgetting and vice versa. And um, remember, you know, when, you, when societies are offered the chance to remember, they usually get bored. They don't want to go through that again. Yet, you know, uh, if we have the chance to remember what lies in the past, it does not only provide us with the chance to understand what happened in the past, but also it provides us with a um, way out of our problems. I thought of remembering as a you know, a probably a probable political cure for our times of insanity. Because when you put the missing part in the memory, and then you become another person, and then you can, you know, remember that the swans can fly, and you are, in fact, capable of doing things. This is what I have to say about the book. But it is related to current situation of Turkey, and also uh, Europe, as well as United States. Nowadays, uh, intellectuals in Europe 
and United States, as far as I could observe, they're talking about uh, rising populism, and this is one of the you know most fashionable, most fancy topics of you know intellectuals uh, circles lately. But there is this particular attitude when they are handling the situation, when they are discussing this topic. They talk as if uh, this is an interstellar object all of a sudden hit the world, that there is no backstory, there, there is no history to it. Well, I do think that there is a history. And in my country, it started in 1980 when, they, when you know, the military coup made people forget that the swans can fly and they are capable of resisting. And then when I look at the European narrative uh, about 1970s and United States narrative, you know, the dominant narrative in United States for 1970s, it is not completely different. Uh, the dominant narrative for this country, for instance, the 70s was naive, confused, and dysfunctional, and probably everybody had bad teeth. Uh, but if we can go back and find the missing part in our memory, what happened, you know, if we can really remember the entire story of 1970s, and then we can take that missing part and our, you know, uh, lost or forgotten capability of doing things and then adapt it to the future. I, I've done journalism for 20 years and then I was fired like many of my colleagues. And, you know, for 20 years, uh, I was doing also literature. I came to think that neither journalism nor literature is capable of changing the world. Words are too fragile for that. However, it is capable of uh, reminding people of beauty and preserving beauty to remind us that we are, in fact, capable beings. We are going through time, some evil times, and the victory of evil does not come overnight. It lays a long siege around the human mind, and then the mind forgets that it can create, think, imagine, and most importantly, remember. So I do think that literature has, by its nature, has the capability to remind us who we are and how limitless we actually are. So this is why I wrote Time of Mutes Ones, and I hope uh, it can also ring a bell uh, when you read it, uh, you know, when you are once more subjected to the dominant narrative of your country's experience of 1970s and what your country lost during 1980s. This is all I have. Thank you very much for listening. That was H.A. Temelkaran. And now we'll hear from Robert Finn, a former lecturer on Turkish literature at Princeton University. His distinguished foreign service career includes posts at U.S. missions in Turkey and as ambassador to Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Before we were talking in the other room and, and Sanair asked me, were you there for the coup? And I said, which one? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been through, through a few of them. And... Um, uh, we were living in Istanbul, uh, not at the time of the coup. We left in, in June of 1980. I was there. Um, uh, my first assignment as a diplomat, giving out visas in Istanbul, and my wife, Helena, who's here, uh, was teaching uh, at Boazici University. 
Um, so we experienced um, the events that were later transposed into the new narrative that you were talking about, uh, but they did take place. Uh, Helen, it was followed uh, by people on her way to the university, and we only found out about it, followed in daily. Uh, we only found out about it because when she went over the hill into the areas where the um, uh, the poorer people lived, they noticed, and they were the ones who told the police, they said, someone is following that foreign woman every day. There was a, a bomb uh, in a, a textile manufacturers uh, association office in our building, and we used, and this is in the center of Istanbul, uh, uh, near uh, one of the lovely hotels overlooking the Bosphorus, an idyllic place that we would lie in bed at night and listen to the shots of, of leftist and rightist groups fighting in the park. And um, and we would have to go out at night because I was a diplomat and there were uh, invitations and uh, you would be stopped by men wearing raincoats and they'd ask for ID and you didn't know who they were. And you were hoping that they weren't people who wouldn't like the fact that uh, you were a foreign diplomat. It was a very, very scary time. It was a scary time forever. Uh, and that's why people, st oops, people started saying um, as you uh, mentioned in the book, when, when it gets to 20 people a day, then the military will step in. And that's exactly what happened. And then, of course, they made their own narrative and they changed things. And we're seeing a change of narrative uh, in this country. And uh, unfortunately, there are lots and lots of parallels uh, between what has happened and is happening in Turkey and what is beginning to happen here. So if only for that, you should read her books and you should also read this one, her political book that came out. She publishes book about once, books about once every other day, it seems. <laughs> so this is another new one. Uh, but very useful information to see um, what can happen and what does happen. And um, the support of the foreign community for the Erdogan government uh, in the years since as something that she touches in this book, and a lot of that uh, came from support given to it by the Western press, uh, which didn't report things uh, in a thorough way, uh, and they still don't, and they didn't after 1980, uh, partially because the Western press, the European press, and I don't just mean American, um, is typically limited uh, to people who don't know Turkish and who don't leave Istanbul. As you said, you're an exceptional writer, who writes about Ankara. I've lived seven years in Ankara, and I committed all my youthful sins there, so I have very happy <laughs> memories of, of Ankara. Um, but it's, it's a city that's not known uh, to most people, and the other cities in the countryside are even less known. So people get a very biased view of what Turkey is really like, because it, like the United States, there are many different Turkeys. Uh, and, and when you go to a different place, you meet a different situation, you get a different, a different point of view. So the, the religious uh, people who, who now are uh, influential are people who were, under the, many of the years of the, of the Republic, were, were kept down. Religion was, was completely de-emphasized. And if you, I remember um, speaking, I was in the Peace Corps in Turkey, too. And I remember in, in 1967 being in Ankara, I was teaching at a, a, a university, and the, the only one I knew who was fasting during Ramazan was the secretary in our Peace Corps office. And one of the reasons for that was if you were working for the government and you fasted during Ramazan, you might have trouble keeping your job. And now the exact opposite, I think, is probably true. So these things change as each group comes in. Um, they, they bring a new, a new narrative that you have to deal with. And trying to be objective uh, is very difficult because you can't get the information. 
Uh, each group controls the information uh, that is allowed to be disseminated, and people who only have, as in this country, people who only have access to that information um, tend to believe it. You know, it's the, the Nazis who told us that if you repeat a lie long enough, people will believe it. Um, so that's true. And um, so that's another factor. But the, the part of the book that, to me, was very interesting, I mean, you told the, the story of the swans, and it's a beautiful uh, a beautiful metaphor, and, and it's certainly true. And I certainly, I know the Swan Park very well, and I always wondered why the swans never left. <laughs> <laughs> we took our son there many times. Um, but the other part of the book, which I think will be maybe uh, more telling for, for the American audience, is that you, you catalog and delineate the disintegration of society in this little neighborhood of, of Ankara, which is a leftist neighborhood, but across the creek at the bottom is a rightist neighborhood. And because of, of the, the methodology of your narrative, which is told by several different characters without transitions that necessarily let you know who was now speaking, you have to read a sentence to say, oh, this isn't the little boy, this is the little girl from a different family, different set of values. So things get a little confused because you're learning them <laughs> to a great deal through children's eyes who don't really know why things are happening, but they know that things are happening. And you see how this, this building, the neighbors, uh, one of whom is a supporter of, of the rightist, we can assume, although that's never clearly delineated, what we know is that she doesn't necessarily like these people who she calls communists. But anyhow, you see how their, dis their relationship disintegrates. And you see how the social structure, the physical structure of the city disintegrates. So um, there was a, a, a bomb that destroyed a bus that went to this neighborhood. So the city just stopped all transportation to the neighborhood. So now you had to walk. Uh, the mayor, was, who was a leftist at that time, was trying to build a, a, a subway, a metro system. Ankara now has a very nice metro system. The government was trying to stop that because it didn't want to give all these poor people access to the city. They didn't want them to be able to come and go uh, just as they wanted. So all of these things were going on. And this, and this disintegration of the social fabric uh, that you're dealing is something that you never get. Uh, in the in the in the political reporting about these things, how it affects people's lives, how how you and I are forced to take a political choice by other people, even though we don't want to. I remember uh, my neighbor telling me of her daughter who was uh, at a university faculty that was controlled by one of the political factions, and she was forced to participate in illegal deeds with them. They took her up to the roof and they say, "Either you do this, or we're going to throw you off." And so then she was tainted by it. And this happened left and right. There was no middle left. And the situation that you have today in Turkey is an inheritance of that. There isn't much middle. People don't have a dialogue. I was around before 1980. And there, there was still a civil dialogue going on uh, between politicians of the left and right in the same way that we used to have in this country, a healthy dialogue on the presumption that eventually we will come to a compromise uh, and do things for the good of the country. Um, but the militarization and the, the, the um, ideological polarization uh, that took place after 90, 1980 led to the situation you have today where people are one or the other, and people are not in dialogue with one another on politics. Either they say nothing at all, or they only associate with people who, who are, are like themselves. And um, again, a parallel with this country, if you look at the map of Turkey, um, 
Politically, it looks like the map of the United States. You have blue on the outside and red on the inside. Uh, and just like the United States, if you actually look at the percentage of voters and voting patterns in the country as a whole, you'll see that there are a few places that are ostentatiously for one side or the other, but that in most places, the margin is, I uh, would say, less than 20 percent uh, between the left and right. So in other words, there is a possibility for that compromise. There is a possibility for things to change and come back. But for that, you need a leadership that is open to that, a leadership that will encourage that. You need a leader uh, that will do that. And uh, without uh, castigating anybody in particular, uh, I think the reason that Erdogan has been able to, to be so successful is uh, largely due to a lack of leadership on the part of other people uh, in Turkey. And I could go into Turkish politics and the system and why this happened, which I won't do. Um, but we're living with the consequence of that. And um, walking these things back is difficult, uh, but it can happen and it will happen. Uh, nothing good lasts forever and nothing bad lasts forever either. And Turkey is a country that, yes, needs support from outsiders, uh, particularly from the Europeans who are always willing to say, aha, see, they're not really like us, uh, without giving them the benefit of the doubt. And um, it all, we also need to keep up our dialogue with Turkey, even though our relations are uh, uh, very, very bad at the moment, because, because the, the other option for Turkey is to switch to other people, to Iran and Russia in particular, um, which is not going to help Turkey in the long run and will certainly not help us in the long run. Um, so to get back to the book, I think it's a wonderful picture in, in Turkish literature. Uh, it's a rarely seen picture of um, of little people, of neighborhood people living their lives. Turkish literature has been uh, dominated by Istanbul, and not only by Istanbul, but, but by people like us in Istanbul, okay? There aren't that many books about the people who are living in, in the, in the uh, lower-income district, very few books about people outside of Ankara. There are some now, but typically, uh, like I said Ankara, I meant Istanbul. Um, typically, you don't get this point of view. So for, is, this is a rare focus uh, on a very, very important part of Turkey that we need more of. That was Robert Finn. Lastly, we'll hear from Institute Bayer Family Fellow and Director of the Turkish Research Program, Soner Shabtai. He is the author most recently of The New Sultan, Erdogan and the Crisis of Modern Turkey. Not having the literary skills of either Robert or Eze, <laughs> but being a nerd, I thought what I would do is provide uh, political background to uh, Turkey after the coup of 1980 and events that have transpired since. Um, but first, a personal note. Uh, so I was uh, raised in Istanbul, but growing up, I spent a lot of time in Ankara. I have family there. I would go there every summer. I did one of my uh, master's degrees there, also lived in Ankara. And until I read your book, I also thought that swans could not fly. I spent a lot of time at the Swan Park. It's, it's, an, incredible, it's an incredible piece of work, a very moving uh, piece of art on Turkey. Definitely highly recommend it. Uh, time of the Mood Swans, great book. So um, in terms of looking at Turkey after the coup of 1980, and I think this is where the law of unintended consequences comes in, uh, the Turkish military moved forward to fashion a new country because they wanted to break with the 70s. Uh, uh, they wanted to create a new society. The coup was predominantly an anti-leftist affair. It meant that half a million leftists were uh, sent to jail. Many were tortured. Uh, it destroyed Turkey's vibrant leftist movements uh, pr pretty much forever, I would say, meaning uh, severing the link between the left and working classes. And that job was done after the coup. 
Uh, it was illegal for someone to be a union member and a party member at the same time. It was illegal for unions to donate money to working class parties, which meant working class parties could not be working class parties. They moved and became uh, middle class parties, which is what happened to CHP. That went from being working class under edge of it to becoming a middle class party by 1990s. What happened when the working class parties and the left vacated uh, poor districts, working class districts, was that political Islamists moved in 1980s and 1990s and organized. And I think, as I agree with you, the AKP did not emerge from uh, nowhere. It actually emerged from the void left from the dis uh, left from the left, which was destroyed after the 1980 coup, and whose uh, departure from working class neighborhoods meant that the AKP and Islamists could now organize there. That was one effect of the coup, I think, this social engineering gone wrong. Uh, but the other part of it, of course, was that the military, again, because the coup was an anti-left affair, thought that um, allowing some religion, uh, departing from Ataturk's model of secularism, therefore, into government and education, was it not a bad idea because that would inoculate Turkish society against leftist movements. A little bit of religion wouldn't hurt. Uh, I think that also went completely uh, uh, wrong. Uh, the military eliminated uh, Turkey's traditional, let's say, Kemalist, secularist firewall between government and religion, education and religion. Uh, that had been a strong firewall until then. Uh, compulsory courses on Sunni Islam were introduced for all students. Uh, uh, as well as uh, programs on Islam on public network TRT. That's very important. In the 1980s, TRT was Turkey's only TV network, and it's remained so until the end of the 80s, until 89 when private networks came up. So for about 10 years, Turks actually watched religion paid with taxpayers' money on government, and one form of one religion, actually one sect of one form of one religion, let's say. Uh, that, of course, I think had an effect that was probably irreversible in terms of Islamization of Turkish society. Okay, again, I think the military is thinking this is how you, what you do against the left, but of course uh, the elimination of the firewall meant that uh, it would never be restored again. Uh, uh, so ironically, the secularist military empowered its nemesis, political Islamists, by its policy of eroding the firewall and taking it down. Uh, a couple of other uh, you know, dramatic changes in the aftermath of the 1980 coup. One was uh, that the, uh, the, the generals decided to ban uh, politicians uh, who had ran the country in the late 1970s, whom they blamed uh, for the crisis of 1970s. Uh, and the foremost among these politicians, of course, was uh, Turkey's prime minister throughout the 1960s and 70s, Demirel. Demirel was the head of Turkey's center-right movement, Justice Party. His party was shut down, and he was banned from politics when Turkey had its first free and fair elections after the coup in 1983. In his absence... Of course, there's a need for a center-right movement. Uh, center-right politicians set up another party. Demirel's ban was lifted later on because the people liked him. They wanted to come back through a referendum. He set up his own center-right party. And Turkey's dominant center-right pillar that had pretty much ran the country ever since it became a multi-party democracy in 1950 was therefore divided into two irreversibly through the act of the military. Uh, Turkey became a democracy, multi-party, free fair elections, 1950. It's 2017. Not counting uh, years spent under military rule, that'd be one after 1960 coup, one after 73 coup, and two after 1980 coup. That's 67 years altogether, not counting those four years. Uh, Turkey was ruled by the left for only 17 months. In the 1970s, height of European socialism, working class movements, and the leader of the charismatic uh, uh, left, uh, the, the charismatic leader of the left, Ejevit, 
not counting Egypt years, this is a center-right country. Uh, its center-right movement has dominated it, and its center-right movement was divided into two by the act of the military, uh, as a result of which now you have two parties by the late 80s. They're called True Path Party and Motherland Party. One is Demirel and one is Ozal's. The two center-right parties basically cannibalized each other, despite the fact that they had few ideological political differences. True Path Party was a little bit more rural. Motherland Party was a little bit more urban. But uh, politically and ideologically, they were not far apart. It didn't matter. Their leaders cannibalized each other. Uh, that became even worse in the 90s after Demirel and Özal passed the baton to uh, Chiller and Yilmaz. And I think 1990s were there for a, a decade horribleous in Turkey. They were not only wasted because of economic crisis, but the fact that the people lost their faith in the political elites because the elites looked like they were only about destroying each other, self-empowerment, self-enrichment, and not public service anymore. And I think that undermined the credibility of the dominant center-right pillar. It was not a shock, therefore, that following the 2002 economic crisis, the center-right parties were not only voted out, but they also both failed to pass Turkey's electoral threshold to enter the parliament. They went from together having nearly 55-60% of the vote in the 1990s and 80s to having dominated Turkey's political landscape pretty much unbroken since 1950 to becoming two parties, both of which fared under 10% nationally. That brings me to my last point, the threshold. Uh, it's an issue that I grappled with in my most recent book, uh, the New Sultan, Erdogan and the Crisis of Modern Turkey. I was trying to look at inflection points for Erdogan to be fair to him and say, if there were inflection points for Erdogan where he had to pick A or B, why did he pick B? Why did he become more authoritarian, although he did not start as such? And I decided that the threshold was one of these inflection points. Uh, here's how it works. So Turkey has a pretty high electoral threshold. Uh, parties need to gain 10% of the vote to enter the parliament. It's the highest in any uh, democracy. Now, most democracies, uh, not the U.S., it's a two-party system, but most multi-party democracies have a threshold. It's usually 2.5%. It makes sense because if you, every party gets in, you can never form government. Some countries have 5% threshold, uh, you know, depending on uh, the, the, the movements that they want to exclude. Uh, Turkey's threshold is the highest. It's 10%, and it's also an invention of the military. Um, it was put in because... Uh, the military's main concern was the Kurdish Nationalist Party. Uh, the Kurdish Nationalist parties in Turkey typically poll around 6.5%. That's kind of an historic solid rate throughout the 80s and 90s. So the threshold could not be 5. It wouldn't be enough to block the Kurds out. It couldn't be 7. That was too random. So let's make it 10. Safe way to keep them out. Fine. Kurdish Nationalist parties could not enter the parliament. Kurds ran independence to enter the parliament, after which they would still form a parliamentary club. So they bypassed the threshold nevertheless. But the threshold actually killed the center-right parties in the 2002 elections after they had cannibalized each other, destroyed the public's faith in the political elites by what they had done. Every election in the 890s was no more about who would serve the country best, but whether this leader of the center-right would jail the other leader of the center-right and if after the election they would have a deal so that nobody would end up in jail, no government would finish its term. Uh, Turkey had three economic crises, uh, no government that ever ran more than two, three years in the 1990s. So definitely a completely wasted decade. And I think if there's one reason why the Turks voted in large numbers for Erdogan's AKP, which promised to bring change, clean government, it's because they had lost their faith in their elites. And I think that has a lot to do with what happened to the uh, political party system. Whenever I go to a new country, uh, there are a few questions that I ask. Uh, one of them is, uh, 
uh, where can I get good fish? Because I'm from Istanbul, fish is like religion. Uh, second is, where can I do good yoga? I like to do yoga. And third is, what is your political party system like? I think a country's political party system explains a lot why it works and why it does not. Turkey's political party system was destroyed in the 1990s and 80s, uh, in large part to what the military did, all the uh, social engineering and a lot of unintended consequences. And, and I think the, th the threshold in this regard is probably one legacy that remains, uh, meaning uh, not only the center-right parties failed the threshold because they were completely destroyed in the 1990, uh, in, uh, 90s, uh, that they, they've both failed the threshold in the 2002 election, but the way the threshold works is uh, if a party fails a threshold, doesn't matter by what margin, 9.9, the, the seats that they'll be getting in the parliament typically go to the first uh, uh, party, uh, the, the party with the largest number of uh, votes, meaning. So the AKP at each election after 2002 emerged with many more seats than its share in the uh, votes. This worked in 2002 when they entered the parliament with 34% uh, uh, of the vote. Uh, and because the threshold cut out all parties but one, they got all the seats that the other parties will be getting, so they ended up with two-thirds of the seats. So if Erdogan had moderated or had adopted a, you know, the model of uh, religious pluralism and better democracy for Turkey, and he, has, he had refashioned his party as a centrist movement, uh, not the Islamist movement of the past, by November 2002, after having won two-thirds of the seats with only one-third of the vote, he probably said, oh, wait a minute, why do I need to moderate? I have more seats than, you know, I, I have enough seats to change the Constitution, and I can if I want to. And I think, in my view, that was, that's why I said it's an inflection point. It may have looked like a blessing to Erdogan because it gave him uh, a complete political domination of the legislative, but in my view, it was a curse because it meant that Erdogan could actually never really keep his moderate platform because he never had to be moderate because he always had a majority of the votes in the legislature, although he never has so far, his party that is, has never won a majority of the seats in the, in the, in the, in the public vote. <laughs> and I think that it remains, in my view, as part of Erdogan's legacy going forward that uh, his party has always been um, empowered with unrepresentative majorities, meaning more seats in the legislature than his share of the votes in the populace in general and perhaps if there was a moderate Erdogan, we never saw it uh, because the threshold did never allow that to flourish. And, and perhaps, of course, going back to the 1980 coup, uh, it's ironic that the threshold that was put in place to keep uh, Turkey's unwanted political movements at bay actually destroyed Turkey's mainstream movements and keeps them away uh, from power now, but also has empowered Erdogan and pr probably created uh, what I would call uh, his party AKP, that is an AKP on steroids a party that was always more powerful in the legislature than it was actually among the people, which therefore never felt that it should seek consensus or build consensus because it never was forced to. The, the party system never worked. So I'm looking forward to the day where Turkey's party system uh, can, can be representative of the country again, and, but I think uh, we're a long ways from that. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.